The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, this was another gigantic episode. We we really did non-alcoholic fatty liver disease from top to bottom. It was a lot of information. Dr. Matherly was great as always. Um, and before we introduce our producer and hear a little bit more about Dr. Matherly, can you remind the audience, what do we do on this show? And if you wanted to give them any tips on how to live a great life, that would be appreciated as well. <laughs> yeah, no, sure. And I, I think this is the definitive uh, fatty liver episode. Tips for a great life. Be kind. Uh, cut back on carbs. Refined sugar. We talk about this in the episode. There's there's, <laughs> there's a lot. So you'll, you'll have to listen to kind of pick it all up. But we are, um, as a gentle reminder, the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And as always, what an expert that we have. So rather than rambling on, as is my way, I think I'm going to actually pass the mic to Dr. Elena Gibson, who's going to tell us about who we talked to and what we talked about. Thank you. So today we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Scott Matherly. He is a transplant hepatologist by day and a nature living dad by night, also known as the liver prof on social media if you want to check him out. He works at an academic transplant center where he specializes in the care of people with cirrhosis and hepatocellular cancer. He is proud of his role as a clinical educator, medical school professor, and mentor to bright young minds throughout their training. And today he will teach us about the spectrum of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or newly named MAFLD, when, when and how to screen for this disease, how to work people up, and what treatments are available, including dietary and lifestyle modifications as one of the primary management tools. So without further ado, let's get to it. Elena, can I just, uh, and this is a joke, I, I have to give Hannah Abrams credit for this. I'm just going to add one thing to oh, it, yeah. but can we, can we title this episode Baffled by About. Naffled, or is it or... Maffled? Yes. <laughs> Please, I love that. Yes. Okay. Thank you. That needs to name drop. Good. <laughs> so, Scott, thank you for coming back on the show. We're not going to ask you all the usual questions so you can rest easy. Just just tell the audience a one-liner about yourself and maybe one hobby outside the world of medicine. Okay. I'm a 45-year-old. I'm a transplant hepatologist, as everyone might know. So I spend a lot of time dealing with cirrhosis and liver cancer, which are my babies. Uh, I am kind of currently obsessed with geology and fossils and trees and weather. Uh, my wife says that I am a tremendous, tremendous nerd. And I am a father to two kids, and I have one on the way. All right. Congratulations. Congrats. Yeah, congrats. <laughs> geology. How did you get into that? I don't know. I'm just a nerd. I just like rocks and plate tectonics and volcanoes and just stuff like that. Just just un unqualified nerd. Fair enough. Welcome. This is I. If, <laughs> you're talking to people that are putting on an internal medicine podcast. It doesn't get much nerdier than that. You're at home. So we're we're not going to go through all the usual questions. <laughs> we're not going to go through all the usual questions. I'm going to ask uh, Elena if she has a pick of the week, and what we can go around if people have picks of the week, and then we'll we'll get to the topic, which is a relatively big topic. All right. So 
I'm going to switch things up on the pick of the week. And I would actually recommend a band, Beirut. I have been listening a lot to, honestly, the 2007 album, which is the Flying Club Cup. But their newest album is Gallipoli from 2019. So check them out if you haven't. All right. Thank you. Paul? Yeah, no, not really. I'm, I'm playing The Last of Us Part 2. So for all the gamers out there who want just a emotionally punishing game about cycles of violence um, and how it affects people and, and you like zombie stuff, yeah, I mean, you might enjoy that. Now, I feel like now is not the right time for it. It's great, um, but it is also <laughs> hideously depressing and just kind of like you, you feel sort of drained when you're done playing it. So if that's the type of thing you enjoy, yeah, go to town. Oh, wait, can I make one more pick of the week? Sure. <laughs> I'm sorry. You think you can follow that up? I don't think you can. I yeah, I started playing this virtual reality game called Beat Saber. It's literally like Guitar Hero for the 2020s. And you hit these boxes with these sabers of light to the beat of music and it's incredibly fun. Is this on your smartphone? What what system are you playing this on? No, it's on a PC. So you get a VR set and we've actually cleared out our entire living room. <laughs> There's like no coffee table, no seating, just room to play this game. That's wow. not like an that's not like an Oculus thing. No, it's actually not Oculus, but I think Oculus is the better version of the VR set. I've heard at least. So not in our price range. So <laughs> I heard there's an Oculus game, Vader Immortal or something like that, where you get the lightsaber battle Darth Vader. Oh. That appeals to my nerdy side as well. Yeah. Maybe that's what I'm practicing for. <laughs> That does sound pretty awesome. Scott, what is your pick of the week? Um, I don't know about a pick of the week. Let's see. Just um, it could be anything you're enjoying, books, uh, any kind of media. Uh, there is a book. There's a, a guy I found on Instagram. I'm, I'm obsessed with sort of like uh, lifestyle modification, weight loss, exercise, which is probably good for this topic, but... Um, there's a book called Not a Diet Book, and uh, Not a Diet Book is by uh, this guy named James Smith, and he's kind of a a lad, you know, he's an English guy, but he's a personal trainer. But he's very kind of no nonsense, and I I really like how he approaches things. But his his book, uh, which came out a couple of months ago, is called Not a Diet Book, and I really liked it, and I I, I think that other people may as well. My pick of the week is a book called Fooled by Randomness. And I think I recommended this a long time ago in the show, but I'm recommending it again because I just reread it. It's it's by a a finance guy named Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And he talks about he talks all about how people don't understand risk and statistics and probability. And as someone who feels that I don't understand those things, it's it's nice to read this book and you feel like you're he talks a lot about rare events. He has a follow-up book called The Black Swan, which is also a very good book. But if anybody's interested in investing or just understanding statistics better or understanding the world a little bit better, I think this is a very interesting perspective. He is a little bit pompous, and I, I think he admits to that in the book, which is kind of funny because I uh, I don't like to think of myself as being that way. So I kind of I find it enjoyable when I see somebody with the guts to just be that uh, pompous, I should say. So anyway, fooled by randomness. And with that, Elena, can you bring us to Cashlack Memorial for a case? Yes, I am happy to. So here at Cashlack, we have Mr. S. 
He's a 59-year-old male. He has a past medical history of insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes and obesity. His BMI is 33. He presents to clinic for a follow-up after he was recently hospitalized following a car accident. The discharge summary note that you read says he will need a follow-up for hepatic steatosis incidentally noted on a CT during the hospitalization. So first thinking about this incidental hepatic steatosis, it's probably not, you know, the first reason he needs follow-up, but it's on that list. And so Dr. Matherly, what are the potential etiologies of hepatic steatosis and what would you do next to work these out? Well, I guess it's good place to start to talk about what steatosis is. It's, it's just a uh, fatty liver. And you're going to see this incidentally uh, on CT scans and ultrasounds. Traditionally, with CT scans and ultrasounds, um, when about 30% of the hepatocytes have undergone a fatty change, in other words, uh, they look like adipocytes on a biopsy, uh, you'll start to see this on imaging studies. So, um, when I'm talking to my patients in clinic, I really talk about two major causes of hepatic steatosis in humans. So there's two two major ways that a liver becomes fatty in humans, and both of them are pathologic. They're not normal. You know, birds store fat in their livers for long flights and migrations and stuff like that. We can stuff food down a duck or goose and make their liver fatty, and some people enjoy eating that. But in humans, this is really pathology. This is abnormal. And the two major ways that you get fat in your liver as a human is alcohol. Okay, people that drink alcohol in a binge fashion or drink alcohol regularly will become, uh, their livers become fatty and inflamed, and that's ultimately how they end up with cirrhosis. Um, the other way is the metabolic syndrome. The metabolic syndrome, of course, being obesity, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and prediabetes or insulin resistance uh, or type 2 diabetes. There are a few other rarer things that can cause hepatic steatosis. We think about uh, genotype 3 hepatitis C, actually. Um, there's uh, Wilson disease. Uh, people that have sudden or rapid weight loss can develop a fatty liver. Um, TPN, people that are on lipids especially uh, chronically with TPN can have fatty livers. And then some medications um, can lead to fatty liver. And we think about prednisone, methotrexate is the classic one, and then, you know, amiodarone, these guys. Uh, those are your, that, that's just a short differential for steatosis. But 90 plus percent of the time, it's either going to be alcohol or the metabolic syndrome. Do you think now's the time to ask about the specific terms or do you want to save that for later? Like there's, there's the varying degrees of NAFLD, NAFLD, NASH, NASH with cirrhosis, there's Apple. cryptogenic cirrhosis, all these things. I, uh, we, I mean, we can talk about it now um, because that, that sort of does – because later on we're going to be talking about how much – too much alcohol, how much is too much alcohol. And that, that really kind of uh, plays into the change in the name to, to, to Maffoldi. Um, yeah, so. and the, the reason for the question is because I, I think people just see steatosis and then some people – I was probably in the past I've, – I've read a lot about this in the past few years, but like the – you, they just use that steatosis and they think NASH is the same thing as steatosis, is the name, same thing as fatty liver disease. And I don't blame because it is it is complicated. And then there's cryptogenic cirrhosis, which I think I now understand, but I, I would love your verification of that. So can you can you tell us about these terms? Sure. Yeah. No, I've had some inc incredibly bright physicians in my uh, training trajectory who just uh, – 
expressed absolute dismay over the differences between these terms, between NAFLD and NASH and encryptogenic cirrhosis. Like, where where are these things? Are they all the same? Are they part of a spectrum? You know, recently, uh, some of the brightest minds in fatty liver disease got together and said, you know, we need to change the name of this. And, and that's probably just going to add more confusion, uh, <laughs> at least in the short term, uh, to what's going on. But basically, they said well, we shouldn't be calling this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in general, uh, mainly because that, you know, this occurs in children. Uh, this occurs in adolescents and adults. This occurs in, in people well before alcohol drinking age. And, and this really should no longer be a, disease, a diagnosis of exclusion. This is an actual thing, right? And and the lack of alcohol should not be part of the diagnosis of this. So the the, the new name that they came up with is fairly similar is MAFLD, or a metabolic-associated fatty liver disease, which kind of makes sense. Uh, this is associated with the metabolic syndrome, so metabolic-associated fatty liver disease. And the nice thing about metabolic-associated fatty liver disease is it kind of takes alcohol out of the equation. So you can you can have metabolic-associated fatty liver disease and alcoholic fatty liver disease, right? So, I mean, you can have the two of those together, and and frequently people do. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about MAFLD because really what the MAFLD uh, drive also sort of includes the extinction of the word NASH um, and uh, is, is kind of a high-level concept. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a lot of time talking about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis because this is what people know, right? So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the way I think about this is basically, and, and remember, I'm a very broad strokes thinker. I, 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 I try not to make things too complicated. And basically for me, most people who are obese and have diabetes in particular will have fatty liver disease. Okay. Most, most of these people will have fatty liver disease. If you do biopsies on most uh, significantly obese people with type two diabetes, the grand majority of these people are going to have greater than 5% steatosis on their biopsy. Okay. And so non-alcoholic fatty liver disease for me is sort of a universal phenomenon. When I see patients in clinic and I'm counseling them and their pa their family members, I'll say, look, Everyone who's overweight and has, you know, insulin resistance has fatty liver disease to some extent. You know, I have it, you have it, um, your your husband over here whose BMI is 38 probably has this, you know. Um, and so this is this is a fairly simple phenomenon. I said this is just a this is just a result of the underlying insulin resistance. The liver starts to become fatty, and that by itself is not a problem. It's it's more of a sign of a bigger problem, which is the metabolic syndrome. All right. So the metabolic syndrome is the actual problem, the one that's associated with a lot of issues. But what I always tell people is that out of this big chunk of people, you know, every this big club that everyone belongs to called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, there's a, there's a smaller chunk of people who also get inflammation or irritation of their liver associated with that fat, okay? Um, those people um, have a condition we call NASH or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And non-alcoholic obviously means non-alcoholic, steato means fat, and hepatitis means inflammation of the liver. And people who have NASH those are the folks that we worry about more from a liver perspective, because once you develop NASH, once you start to get fibrosis, which NASH people ultimately develop, that's when you start to get liver-related mortality and liver disease uh, as, as a concern. So basically out of the huge group of people who have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is essentially everybody who's obese and has diabetes, you'll have this smaller group of about 20% who will have inflammation of their liver and will be developing fibrosis. And it's kind of our job to try to figure out who that smaller group of 
who that population is, who has NASH. Now, when I see people in clinic with, for fatty liver disease, that's what I tell them. I said, my job as a hepatologist is to figure out, do you have the scary kind of fatty liver disease or NASH, or do you not have the scary type of fatty liver disease? You know, a, a significant chunk of folks with NASH will go on, can go on to develop cirrhosis. The, the percentages are variable depending on what you look at, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 40% of them uh, will go from having NASH to having cirrhosis of the liver. Um, and uh, we all know what cirrhosis is, just a liver that's become so scarred up and fibrotic that it no longer functions normally. And then uh, cryptogenic cirrhosis, the whole concept of cryptogenic cirrhosis is basically cirrhosis with a hidden cause, right? We don't know what caused the cirrhosis. And we know that, especially in people that have underlying metabolic type risk factors, a, a significant chunk of cryptogenic cirrhosis is going to be what we call burnout fatty liver disease. Any people that used to have uh, rip-roaring uh, fatty liver disease, but um, over time have become more sarcopenic and maybe lost weight, and the disease process has kind of burned itself out, but they're left with this kind of scarred up hulk of a liver that uh, no longer works great. So that's kind of the, the terminology there. To just take the mysticism out of it. The fatty liver is just what everybody who's overweight and diabetes has. Um, NASH is the inflammatory version of that uh, that we should be concerned about. And we, you had originally, we were sort of taking alcohol out of the picture. So let's put it back in just for a hot minute. So for this particular patient, how what kind of assessment do you do to ensure or actually determine if alcohol is part of the process or not? Like how, how do you quantify that and how do you determine whether alcohol is a major contributor or not? That's a great question. And I, I got to tell you that alcohol and fatty liver disease is a, is a hot controversial subject, uh, you know, and um, the bottom line is that there have been studies that shown people that eat that drink, um, you know, light amounts or moderate amounts of alcohol actually have better outcomes with fatty liver disease. There have been other studies showing that the outcomes are worse. Um, in general, this kind of comes to personal preference about how you counsel your patients, but that's one thing that I like about the MAFLD, the, the Metabolic Associated Fatty Liver Disease, because I don't have to spend half my life trying to figure out is this, is this alcohol-related or is this not. I mean, it's just somebody who drinks alcohol who also has metabolic risk factors, so they probably have both of these phenomenon going on. Um, the... That's sort of going, uh, the going sort of definition, I would say, is that people that drink moderate to heavy amounts of alcohol are, are considered to have um, an, a significant alcohol component of their fatty liver disease, or what my old boss, Dr. Sterling, would call BASH. Uh, so people people have NASH or they have ASH or they have BASH and BASH is both. They have both, al <laughs> they have both alcoholic and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, right? So um, and typically it depends. The the definitions have changed depending on what study you're looking at, but roughly it's a little bit different for men and women because men and women metabolize alcohol differently. And unfortunately for women, they don't metabolize alcohol as as well as men do, so they get away with less. Um, so for a man, about four drinks a day. Uh, anything above that is considered um, is considered excessive or heavy alcohol use, or up to 14 drinks a week. So it, it sort of evens out to about if you're drinking more than two drinks per day, that's considered excessive um, or moderate uh, heavy alcohol use. And for females, it's three up to three drinks a day or up to seven drinks per week. Uh, so it's uh, it's less. Um, you do the audit C questionnaire. You can uh, kind of figure out if there's a, a problem there. 
Uh, I see mentioned here the the ANI score. I, I don't use that in my own clinical practice, but that's looked at as a, a way of sort of differentiating between, you know, is alcohol playing a role here or is it not? Um, basically, what I tell my folks is that if they have the significant, the inflammatory fatty liver disease and fibrosis, I tell them that they shouldn't be drinking probably. And, and that significant amounts of alcohol are going to uh, add to this problem. If you look at these things under a microscope, if you look under alcoholic steatohepatitis under a microscope and you look at non-alcoholic steatohepatitis on a microscope, you can't tell the difference, okay, because they're the same. Uh, pathophysiolo- the pathophysiology of these problem- these things is very, very similar. Their histology is identical. And in my clinical practice, they, they seem to be additive to one another. Now, that's just my sort of anecdotal uh, sort of experience. I've seen many, many people that have sort of one or two metabolic risk factors and moderate alcohol ingestion come into me with decompensated cirrhosis from fatty liver disease. And I, these, these things tend to add up to one another. It's always seemed pointless to me to try to, I, I assess alcohol use, but I, I don't figuring out the, like which, which one is causing NASH. It, it just never seemed that important. Like you're going to, you're going to have to counsel them like don't drink a case of beer a week if you if you have fatty liver for sure. So I think it just it it never seemed well, that important. We'll talk about this later, obviously. But for me, it kind of boils down to what can we do about this? Well, you know yeah. what what's going on with what's going on with this person? Um, there's there's basically boils down to lifestyle modifications. You've got some kind of process going on that's inflaming, irritating your liver. We know that alcohol inflames and irritates the liver. It's easy to change, <laughs> you know. It's easy to cut down. Mm-hmm. It's easy to sort of take that variable out of the uh, picture and see what happens. You know, the other the other thing, weight loss and control of diabetes is a much uh, trickier and uh, higher hill to climb a lot for a lot of people. So. You know, that's kind of how I'll approach it. I'll say, look, you know, try cutting down your alcohol and let's see what happens with your liver numbers, et cetera. So let's let's take it back to our case. I'm a little bit disappointed that Mr. S. Do we have a last name? No. Oh. Can make it steatosis. If you're uh, if you're expecting a pun for me, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But for for Mr. S., like I feel like this is a great case because I feel like we see this all the time. So it is someone with metabolic risk. So he's he's insulin requiring type two diabetic. He has a BMI of 33. And then we have this sort of incidental finding of steatosis on imaging. And then you're saying when you're talking to the patient, what sort of workup should have happened by that point? Like how for someone who has pretest probability sort of this high of having um, metabolic uh, related steatohepatosis, like how, how bonkers should we go in the laboratory workup? What sort of evaluation should be happening before we even um, proceed from here? And this was a question from Daniel Orum, MD, on Twitter. So thank you for that question. Thank you, Daniel, who used far fewer words than I do. Um, <laughs> that's probably because it's Twitter and also probably because it's me. Yeah, no, this is a great question. And, and this kind of goes back to the changing of the name, right? So non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease was by definition a disease, a diagnosis of exclusion, okay? So if you have a diagnosis of exclusion, you must go about excluding things, right? And, um, you know, traditionally when people come in with abnormal liver enzymes and we think that they have fatty liver disease, we still do fairly extensive workups. And if you look at the if you look at the guidelines for fatty liver disease, they still recommend that we have to rule out all these things, uh, these other what I call the common and uncommon causes of liver disease, right? So I'll send... So to, the short answer is probably yes if you're a hepatologist, uh, maybe maybe not if you're out there in primary practice. You don't necessarily need to spend a lot of time looking for Wilson disease because, quite honestly, I've been looking for it for years and years, <laughs> and I've yet to find it. 
Um, but, you know, certain things, yeah, should you be looking at? Should the patient get a hep C antibody test? Absolutely. You know, the, the, current, the current recommendations are to do hep C antibody tests on everybody between ages 17 and 79. So uh, if they meet that criteria, should you check a hep C and make sure they don't have hep C? Yeah, because there's a lot of hep C out there, and a lot of people don't have identifiable risk factors for it. Uh, but you have to be a little bit careful about what you're working up to, because if you send things like the ANA, the anti-smooth muscle antibody, you know, common workups for autoimmune hepatitis are frequently positive in this patient population, okay? Uh, it's not uncommon to find low-level positive ANAs and anti-smooth muscle antibodies in these folks. And then you're asking yourself, okay, well, what am I doing now? Does they have, do they have autoimmune hepatitis? Um, and then uh, things like the ceruloplasmin, frequently low in, in this population. Again, it's, it's a crappy test to begin with, the ceruloplasmin, and, and then you send it on people that probably don't have Wilson disease, but uh, and it comes back positive. Then you're stuck doing 24-hour copper levels uh, and, and stuff that, that are, that are kind of cumbersome. So yeah, I, I would say that at a very minimum, you need to do a, a, a sort of a sort of small workup for underlying liver diseases that are fairly common. I think that that's probably common sense. But do you need to do hog wild evals, sending you know anti soluble liver antigens and and uh, looking for celiac disease and stuff like that? I don't I don't think you need to be that aggressive. But yeah, I think you I think you do have to look for some more common things. Can I suggest some and maybe we can agree on a list just just to give the audience some a little bit of a concrete. Would you say ferritin, just screening for, you know, check a ferritin and transferrin saturation, do you think that's a reasonable, I mean, that's kind of, that, that's in the primary care wheelhouse to be sending that on patients. And then some other ones, I would think maybe any chronic hepatitis, like hep B, hep C, and ask them about alcohol. Anything else, Paul, that you send or you would, that you would throw, that you would throw up for? No, no, I, I, probably do not chase this down nearly as aggressively as I should. Like I, it's one of those, it's one of the reasons why I'm kind of curious. Cause I feel like if I have a fairly good pretest probability, which the fact of the matter is most of my sure. patients do, um, I, I don't go chasing down the exotic stuff, but I probably should be right. um, a little more selective. Yeah. I, say, I go, oh, go ahead, Scott. I'm sorry. I, I would say that another one I would, I would kind of add to the list that I frequently check. And I think it's worth checking is alpha one antitrypsin. There's a lot of alpha one antitrypsin deficiency out there. There's a lot of alpha one antidepressant. Uh, alpha-1 antitrypsin uh, carriage, uh, you know, and, and carriers of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency are at higher risk of, of uh, liver disease if they have a, you know, a, diff, a concomitant liver disease. So um, they usually won't get the lung disease that goes along with alpha-1 antitrypsin, but they, they very much are at higher risk for getting liver disease uh, if they have concomitant fatty liver disease or concomitant hepatitis C. So alpha-1 is a decent one to look for. Ferritin, uh, ferritin, I, I got to admit, even I'm a little bit um, selective about who I send ferritin and iron saturations on. Um, Caucasian males, absolutely, usually I'll do it. Um, I don't do it as often in the African-American population because classical hereditary hemochromatosis is less likely in them. Uh, and then in females, it kind of depends on where they are in their in their life cycle, Um um, sometimes I'll just send a ferritin rather than a, a full transferrin saturation. You have to be able to, you have to be ready to interpret ferritin and iron saturations yes. in, a, in, a, in the appropriate clinical context, right? So, um, like for instance, I saw a patient at Cashlack in the last couple of months who has rheumatoid arthritis, but she also has hereditary hemochromatosis. So I'm having a devil of a time trying to figure out, you know, is her ferritin elevated because her rheumatoid is uncontrolled, or is her ferritin elevated because her her iron stores are high and I need to keep phlebotomizing her, that sort of thing. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that sounds difficult. I'm sure Stuart would have something to say about that. Something about <laughs> soluble transferrin receptors and um okay, so it sounds like the list that we're 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 saying hep, you know, hepatitis, the hepatitis serologies for chronic hepatitis, alpha 1 antitrypsin, maybe a ferritin, but make sure you understand how to interpret it and probably avoid the ANA, all the all the fancy autoimmune labs unless you really know what you're doing, but probably hepatology can do that for us if we send the patient over to hepatology. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And the autoimmune stuff that, you know, if the person has rip-roaring transaminase elevations, you know, your, your typical NASH patient's going to have these kind of low-grade uh, transaminase elevations. Uh, but if you got transaminases in the hundreds and hundreds, that's you, you definitely need to be thinking about autoimmune in that sort of situation. So again, context is key. But um, That's a good point. Yeah, I was one thinking thing I, the patient. The patient you see, their 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 transaminases are in the the sixty. You know, they're one to two times upper, not one to two. Yeah, they're like two times to three times upper limit normal, is what we most commonly would see. I'd say. And the one one little pet peeve. You know, I'm famous for my pet peeves. One of my pet peeves, <laughs> well, it's just with the hepatitis workup. I think it's absolutely a great idea to look for Hep B and Hep C. Um, the there's something that uh, physicians across the world tend to do is send what's called the acute hepatitis panel, uh, uh, which seems to exist um, in some kind of order entry universe. And uh, that the, the acute hepatitis panel is for people that have acute hepatitis. And and I I even tweeted about this not long ago. How many hepatitis A IgMs do I need to see? You know, and that's just tremendous waste of money and resources uh, to just send this acute hepatitis panel on people. You get all these IgM levels back that are ultimately not going to be terribly useful to you. So, Hep C antibody, Hep B core, Hep B service antigen, and probably knock out everything that you need right there. A personal favorite of mine is the Hep C antibody checked yearly after it's been initially positive. So you just check it in perpetuity just to make sure it stays positive, which I I think is incredibly useful. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Or yeah. Five years later, send them back to me after I've cured their hepatitis C <laughs> and say their hepatitis C is positive again. Yes. Oh, it'll it'll always always be positive. You need a chronic hepatitis panel next. <laughs> that that would be great. Maybe right, I'll, more more order sets is exactly what we need. Maybe I'll patent that. It's <laughs> good. Just thinking about how this person not come in with imaging findings, should you be getting a CMP on people who have, say, diabetes more often to look for this? Or should you, if you have a slight elevation, then should you get imaging? And kind of how do you do this if you didn't have the imaging finding? Uh, this uh, this is a great but dangerous question, <laughs> uh, mainly because my opinions on this uh, are vary somewhat from the official guidelines of the American Association for the Study for Liver Disease. And I, I, I think I brought this up at the ACP meeting a couple of years ago. Um, the bottom line is that the current guidelines from the ASLD uh, do not recommend looking for NASH and fatty liver disease even in patients with obesity and diabetes. European guidelines absolutely do. Uh, but the American guidelines also hedge a little bit and say, you should remain vigilant for the possibility that they have uh, underlying fatty liver disease. And the main reason that the guideline doesn't suggest screening for it is because there's been cost analysis that you know it doesn't do any good to find this because we don't have any great treatments for this, blah, 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 blah. So that that's kind of their rationale. But when I... I I, when I try to think beyond guidelines and what's right for our patient, like what's right for the person sitting in front of me, I think it's probably a better idea to send a CMP 
or a hepatic panel, look at their liver enzymes and keep in mind what a normal liver enzyme should be for, for that patient. You know, for a female, we should be looking at an ALT that's about 20. For a male, an ALT should be about 30. So if you're seeing ALTs of 40, 45, your, your test may say that's normal. But in the reality of the situation is we think that that's two times the upper limit of normal. And if these liver enzymes are elevated, um, or if you're just concerned about this person, they have diabetes, they have really bad control of their diabetes, they're really obese, um, sending them for an ultrasound uh, to see if they have underlying fatty liver disease and, and doing things like a Fib4, which we can talk about, are, I think, very appropriate. And I, I guess you could consider that being vigilant. So I, I would say in, in patients who are obese and have a lot of sort of metabolic risk factors, I would be vigilant for this. Because the problem with fatty liver disease is that it often presents with a 12-centimeter liver cancer, or it often presents with decompensated cirrhosis. And that's not when you want to be finding this, okay? You want to be finding this before they get to that point. I would argue that there is treatment, not not necessarily great pharmacologic treatment, but if you like, it seems like lifestyle, diet, and exercise work for this. So you could intervene, and and maybe that's that's the reason to go along with the European guidelines. And if you have high suspicion, may, maybe it'll help prove to the patient that they need to invest in some of these uh, th- this self care if they if they can see something, some numbers or some imaging findings that prove to them that they need to do this. I, I 100% agree. I've I've seen it work. Just to sit down and talk to a patient, and say, look, you've got this problem, and you can do something about it. I, you know, there's one of these questions that uh, from Twitter saying, how do I talk to somebody without fat shaming them, you know? And for me, this isn't about fat shaming. For me, this is about educating the patient about what's going on inside their body and give, telling them, you know what, you could fix this. You can do something about this. And here's how. And, you know, that's kind of how I approach this. And, um, you know, it doesn't work for everybody, but there's some people it does work for. There are some people that come back to me, you know, four or five months later, 30 pounds lighter, 20 pounds lighter with normal liver enzymes. And and, and that just is is an amazing feeling. Can we hear what a little bit of that sounds like when, you, when you're telling, let's say Mr. S, you're, you're telling him he was drinking, uh, just to give you a little more of his history, his so his ALT was 48, his platelets are 182. He has negative Hep B, Hep C testing. We snuck in an anti-smooth muscle antibody because we're fancy, and it was negative as well. So you read the up-to-date article. <laughs> he uh, he occasionally drinks one beer on a Saturday, but used to drink like six beers a day in his twenties when he was still partying. And uh, he just doesn't see how he could have a problem with his liver. Why does he have a problem with his liver, and what can he do about it? So, yeah, so I approach these patients, basically what I said at the beginning, I said, look, you, you know, you have imaging showing that you have fat in your liver. You have some liver enzymes are elevated. And I, you know, I spend a lot of time just, I probably spend more time than the average primary care doctor can spend with their patient just because I'm a subspecialist and I have that kind of luxury. But I, I do, I start from the beginning. I tell them what their liver is. You know, you know, people, a lot of people don't even know what a liver is. So a concept such as, oh, hey, you got fatty liver disease or whatever. 
um, is, is a very sort of vague concept. I just tell them that you got a liver. The liver is this big organ that sits under your rib cage on the right side, and it's sort of the metabolic engine of your body. It makes a lot of things. It stores a lot of things. It basically deals with everything that you eat or drink, and that's kind of my definition. Yours has a lot of fat in it, um, and um, your liver enzymes are elevated, and that tells me that it seems like it might be getting injured by this process. And I say, well, this is what causes fat in the liver. You know, alcohol can cause fat in the liver, but that doesn't seem to be the case with you. But in this case, the other thing that can cause fat later, fat in the liver is being overweight, having high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and diabetes. You know, the metabolic syndrome. And for a lot of my patients, they have all of those. And I say, does that sound familiar? And then, and they'll just chuckle and say, yeah, you know, that's me. And I kind of give them my sort of brief overview that's probably – uh, simplistic to the nth degree of, of what causes this. And I say, you know, look, we used to think that this fat in our belly just sat there and didn't do anything. That we, you know, we had this sort of, we had this fat around our abdomen and it just was an inert substance and was just there. I said, but we now know that this is a very, very powerful endocrine organ. This fat produces a lot of things. It produces cytokines and adipokines and free fatty acids and inflammatory mediators and all of these things that have an effect on our body. And one of the predominant effects on our body is it makes us resistant to insulin. And, you know, insulin's a hormone made by the pancreas, which is a fluffy little organ that sits below your stomach that helps you bring sugar from your blood into your cells. And I actually tell the patients, this is exactly what I say, almost verbatim. And I say, you know, your pancreas can overcome insulin resistance just by making more and more and in, more and more insulin. And the problem is that that confuses the liver because the liver uses insulin to tell it whether you've just eaten or whether you have not eaten in a long time. And if the liver thinks that you've just eaten all the time because your insulin levels are high, it starts to go haywire and start storing fat within itself. And that's kind of how you get fatty liver disease. Now, what can you do about that? Well, the thing that you can do about that is if you make that insulin resistance get better, then the fat will start to come out of the liver and the whole process results. And then we can talk about how you can make that process be better. You know, we can add exercise, which decreases insulin resistance. We can lose weight. And so I sort of uh, sort of approach it that way. So I give them sort of a little physiologic underpinnings. Now, how much of that have they absorb? I don't know, but I just can't stop myself from talking about it. <laughs> uh, as Just sort of like I can't stop myself from talking about it on your podcast right now. Um, but yeah, I would give them, uh, I give them some basic physiology about what's going on inside themselves. And I say, look, you know, in, in the, and I talk to them about the difference between fatty liver and NASH and what I'm looking for. And are you the one of the people with elevated, you know, that is at risk for developing cirrhosis or you or liver cancer? Um, you know, I'm concerned about you because your liver enzymes are elevated. They're higher than they should be. That tells me that your liver is being injured. And this is what I want to do to try to figure that out. I'm going to ask you to do this, this, and this. I'm going to bring you back in a few months. And if things are looking better, I'm going to clap you on the back, say, good job. Things are looking better. But if they're not, then there's some other testing that we're going to go down the road and try to look at. That's phenomenal. And I think I now understand fatty liver disease better than I ever have before in my life just after that. I, there, I feel like, there, and I don't know, there's probably nothing to back this up, but I feel like a lot of sort of lifestyle counseling, you're counseling about potentiality. You know what I mean? Like you're saying this could happen if you don't, if this doesn't happen. But I feel like there's something particularly visceral, you know, no pun intended about saying, listen, there, your your organ is fundamentally different now. There is now stuff in it. There's inflammation is actually being hurt. And so to sort of frame the conversation away, like there's, there's damage happening and we can now reverse that just, I feel is more impactful than we're going to prevent something 20 years down the line. Like it's just, it's a much harder sell when you're talking about potential things that can happen as opposed to sort of the actual situation. But that's just me probably talking out of hand. 
No, I mean, I think I think that's right. And I also kind of think about what is important to the person that I'm sitting there talking to and, and, and sort of vague concepts such as cirrhosis and fibrosis and all these sort of things. They're probably like, oh, that sounds terrible. I'm going to die. Uh, but, you know, I talk about things like, you know, if you're able to lose, you know, I, I look at whatever their body weight is and I'll say 10 percent, 10 percent of your body weight. So if you weigh 190 pounds. If you can lose 19 pounds, I can tell you that the inflammation in your liver that's causing the problem will get better. I can almost guarantee it. Your liver enzymes will come down. Everything will look better. But you know what else is going to get better? Your reflux. You know what else is going to get better? Your diabetes. You know what else is going to get better? Your energy. Like, you're going to feel better. And and I can attest to that because I've lost weight. I can I can tell you that I've had this same process go through going on in me, and I've dealt with it, and I feel better. You're going to feel better if this happens. You're going to be on less medicines. Thing, things are going to be positive for you if this happens. It's not just the liver that's going to benefit from this. I think maybe we should talk about the next steps for Mr. S because there's a, there was a lot of questions about the scores. Elena, do you want to read the next part of the case yeah. and introduce those? Yeah. So Mr. S comes back into clinic after talking to you about what fatty liver disease is and attempting to lose some weight but wasn't successful on his first try. And after you as a avid listener have reviewed the previous cirrhosis episodes on the curbsiders, you calculate Mr. S's FIB4 score, which is 1.6, suggesting the need for further evaluation to determine the degree of hepatic fibrosis present. Uh, So what would you do next? Would you go to additional imaging such as elastography or an MRI, or would you refer for biopsy to determine what degree of fibrosis or any was present? Yeah, this is a great question as well. And and this is, somebody posed this question to me to, at the ACP a couple of years ago as well. Look, I'm a doc out in the country. I live, you know, 200 miles away from the nearest academic medical center. There are no hepatologists even in my time zone. Like, how am I, how am I supposed to deal with, with uh, the patient that has fatty liver disease? Like, wh- how am I supposed to evaluate this? And... The bottom line is that it's a little difficult. And my answer to to you is, what do you, what do you have available to you? Okay, so if if you're the country doctor that doesn't have a hepatologist available, you're, you're trying to figure out whether this person is at risk. Is this somebody that we I need to risk to send over to the local community hospital for a liver biopsy, or is this somebody that I can feel a little better about? Then I, I would say the first step in that sort of assessment is is their the serologies and these sort of serologic scores that you can do, because you can do these based off of a hepatic panel and a CBC, okay? And everybody, are a comprehensive metabolic panel and a CBC. And these things can uh, be very, very useful. And in fact, I do them all the time in my academic hepatology clinic. Um, I did several today. Uh, the bottom line is that the FIB4, which was created by my, my boss, Dr. Sterling, initially to figure out who was at risk for having advanced fibrosis and hepatitis C HIV co-infection has been found to be very, very useful across a broad variety of liver diseases, including fatty liver disease. And basically, you can go on the internet, type in FIB4 calculator, plug in an AST, an ALT, a platelet count in their age, and it's going to spit out a number for you. Now, that number, if it's low, if it's less than 1.3, 
uh, for your average patient is extremely reassuring. Okay, that number is very, very good at telling us that that patient has a very, very low risk for having any significant fibrosis. And so in that patient, say your patient with obese diabetes, liver enzyme may be mildly elevated. If you do the Fib4 and it's really, really low, you can breathe easy for a little while and just sit back with, um, with you know, lifestyle modifications. Do, do you tell them that there's nothing to do, nothing to worry about? No, they still have an underlying problem that you need to work on. But you tell them that right now it doesn't look like I need to be sending you for a biopsy. You don't seem to have a lot of scar tissue in your liver. Conversely, the Fib4 and the other one that is, is called the NAFL fibrosis score, uh, both of these are things that you can calculate yourself at the bedside. Um, both of these are fairly good at telling you if the patient doesn't have any scar tissue, and they're fairly good at predicting if the patient has cirrhosis. In other words, if the numbers are really high, uh, they often will uh, suggest that the patient has cirrhosis and, and vice versa. But in the middle, it's mush. And the problem is that like 30 to 30, 40% of the ones that you do here are going to come back intermediate, and then they're basically worthless at that point. So you, you can't really interpret them. Uh, they're good on the margins. So if that's all you have available to you, that's a good tool to use. Okay, so if their Fib4 is really high, then you might be wanting to get an ultrasound. You might be sending them to your hospital to get a biopsy or something like that. That being said, if you have something a little more sophisticated available to you, um, <clears throat> like a vibration-controlled transient elastography uh, somewhere in the neighborhood, and these, these machines are actually becoming more and more uh, prevalent, just a couple of years ago, they were really, you could only find them in academic centers, but a lot of like even local GI centers are, are starting to get these machines. And basically with vibration controlled transient elastography, uh, I call it the thumper test to my patients. You know, it's an ultrasound with a little thumper bumper on the end of it. You put it over in the rib space on the right where the liver is, you press a button and it thumps them. And it basically sends this shear wave through the liver. And my simplistic way of thinking about what's happening when it does this is that this machine will measure how fast or slow that wave propagates through the liver and it'll measure about how deep it goes into the liver and by doing so it can tell you how stiff the liver is and it can tell you what basically stiffness correlates with fibrosis okay so that's sort of your next step so if you have a if you have a patient you're concerned about and you have a vibration controlled transient elastography machine available to you uh, then that that's the next best step to do so if i see a patient in clinic uh, their liver enzymes have been elevated. I tried a little bit of lifestyle modifications. Things haven't gotten better. I usually send them for transient elastography. Now, is it useful in patients? Uh, yeah, you have to be a little careful in interpreting these things uh, in your patients who are very, very obese uh, because things such as obesity, um, when they last eight, congestion of the liver, these sort of things can affect uh, the elastography and can give you false positive readings. For me and what I tell my patients is I use um, vibration control transient elastography as a peace of mind test. So again, if the vibration control transient elastography comes back as uh, very little stiffness, very little fibrosis, that's fantastic. If it gives me almost any other readings above that F2, F3, F4, uh, fibrosis, then I am very, very prone to wanting to do a liver biopsy on that patient because ultimately liver biopsy is the gold standard. You don't want to be biopsying everybody in creation, but you can use these tests like Fib4, the NAFLD fibrosis score, and the uh, VCTE if you have it available to you to kind of figure out who you need to be the most worried about. Who do you need to refer to hepatology? Who do you need to refer to your local gastroenterologist? Or who do you need to send uh, for a biopsy? So for someone who has a who has evidence of NAFLD, 
but it has a pretty low FIB4 score. Is there, how often do you repeat that? Is it just a one and done? Is it done on a yearly basis or changing risk factors? How often should we be checking in just to see if there has been progression or not? I think it depends a little bit on what you think their underlying risk is. Uh, if it's somebody that has seems to have a little fat in their liver, but um, you know they have no family history of cirrhosis, they um, are just a you know BMI of 29, but don't have prediabetes. Their A1C is okay. Their cholesterol levels are low. They don't have hypertension. You know you can probably just keep an eye on it every couple of three years. Um, if it's a patient that has some more risk factors like metabolic risk factors. Um, and you're a little worried that they might progress or their FIB4 is kind of marginal, then I, I would probably tend to do that like every six months to a year um, to, to, to keep an eye for worsening of that situation. But again, that's kind of eminence-based and not necessarily evidence-based right. advice. Not we'll that I'm eminent. We'll take it. That's, uh, yeah, exactly that's right. a big reason people listen to the show for that, for that sort of advice. I think the next natural thing to talk about, let's say Mr. S gets his biopsy, he's stage two fibrosis, and we want to talk to him about what are some of the potential complications. He's like, okay, doc, so I'm intermediate fibrosis score. Why should I even care about this thing? Like he's still, let's say he's still not losing weight. What what risks are the long-term risks that he needs to worry about? Well, no. He does need to be worried because once you've once you've reached the point of having fibrosis in the liver, that's when um, a whole slew of things start to become a problem. Uh, in particular, you know, liver-related morbidity and mortality starts to become a real uh, concern. And uh, in addition, patients with NASH have all kinds of extra hepatic things that they that that's associated with fatty liver disease, right? So. Uh, diabetes, polycystic ovarian syndrome, hypothyroidism, coronary artery disease, cancer, uh, you know, psoriasis, sleep apnea, chronic kidney disease, all of these things have been linked to um, fatty liver disease. So uh, this kind of goes into the sort of narrative that this isn't just a liver problem. This is a sign of a much bigger problem uh, with your body, which is this underlying insulin resistance and, and metabolic syndrome. That being said, once somebody becomes NASH, there are really three things that can uh, that they end up uh, developing and that we need to be on guard for. Okay, one is cardiovascular disease, and they have the metabolic syndrome. They're at higher risk of cardiovascular disease than the average Joe, and it's not necessarily because of their NASH, but NASH has clearly been linked to uh, cardiovascular mortality. Okay, and so. We have to spend a lot of time doing cardiovascular mortality mitigation strategies, right? Um, and then the second thing is liver-related mortality, the development of cirrhosis, the development of liver cancer. These people are at risk for that. They need to be monitored for progression. Uh, with uh, If they're sort of stage 2 fibrosis, I would be doing a, a, a transient elastography on them or every every year or two to see if there's been any worsening I'd be really actively work, working on um, on lifestyle modifications with them and we can talk about medications and and that sort of thing and then finally cancer they're at risk for both liver cancer and other systemic cancers have been linked to NASH these are the things that tend to kill people once they develop NASH I just wanted to bring up, well, because we talked about cardiovascular disease, uh, one of the pearls for the episode here, and one thing I want to just sort of get out to the universe, is that statins are safe in <laughs> liver disease. Okay, I said it slow. Statins are safe in liver disease. Okay? Uh, statins can be used in chronic liver disease. Um, do statins cause idiosyncratic drug-induced liver injury? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. So does about every other drug on earth. Um, but do statins make liver enzymes go up? Yes. Does Dr. Matherly care that liver enzymes go up? Usually no. Okay. So if I, I see so many patients come to my clinic who have cholesterols up through the roof, should clearly be on a statin, and they're not because their primary care doctor, uh, you know, they have liver disease. They shouldn't be on this drug. Statins are probably beneficial in fatty liver disease. Statins are probably beneficial in cirrhosis. Okay. So the reality of the situation is if the patient needs a statin and if they otherwise did not have liver disease, you would put them on a statin, put them on the statin. Okay. If their liver enzymes go up a little bit, ride it out. It'll be okay. You know, if there's, if their liver enzymes go up into the hundreds and hundreds, yeah, you probably need to stop it. But I usually tolerate ALTs up into 150, 200 on a statin and I'll just keep them going. Okay. The only time I stop statins pretty much is really badly decompensated cirrhosis. And I, I think the I think the the data clearly shows that they may be unsafe in that situation. Um, the the complication of statins that we run into problems with in cirrhotic patients is not liver failure. It's my it's the muscle complications of statins. The same thing everybody else has issues with. So the bottom line is that statins are probably very, very useful in, you know, controlling the cholesterol, controlling the hyperlipidemia. Uh, is probably useful. Is it going to make the NASH go away? I don't think so. I mean, if the studies on statins and NASH are not fantastic, uh, but at the same time, that there's a lot of positive effects on statins and liver disease in general. And so hepatologists are pro-statin. I just, I just wanted to get that out there yeah. to the universe. They've got such a bad name, but uh, the reality of the situation is they're probably helpful. I wanted to ask a follow-up question about hepatocellular carcinoma and in so you said you're, mo- you're going to be monitoring for cirrhosis at what point for patients with fatty liver disease do you start to worry about hepatocellular carcinoma and screen them afps or or ultrasounds once they have cirrhosis uh, that's that's what it boils down to. That's one of the scarier aspects of of fatty liver disease is that we if you if you take care of cirrhotic or patients with cirrhosis, sorry, uh, if you take care of patients with cirrhosis um, and and fatty liver disease for long enough, you're going to start encountering people with liver cancer who don't seem to have cirrhosis, and and that's that's kind of the the spooky thing about this. The problem is even the incidence of hepatocellular carcinoma in fatty liver disease-induced cirrhosis is probably less than the incidence of hepatocellular carcinoma in other causes of cirrhosis, such as alcohol-related or hepatitis C. Now, hepatitis C, the risk is about 3 to 5% per year. We'll get, we'll get liver cancer uh, who have hepatitis C cirrhosis. With, with NASH-related cirrhosis, it's probably less than that. But what you got to realize is that we're talking about sheer volumes of people compared to the 5 million people in the country that have hepatitis C. You probably have 60 plus million people that, in the country that have NASH. Okay, So even if there's a significant percentage less risk, you're going to see it. But the bottom line is that the the right now the we only screen people for hepatocellular carcinoma who have liver – I mean who have cirrhosis. So it's uh, once they get cirrhosis, they start every six months uh, surveillance. I will say you got to be a little careful, and this really gets into more hepatology world. But uh, surveillance for hepatocellular carcinoma is typically an ultrasound. You know, ultrasound every six months is what what we do for our patients. But ultrasound has a real world sensitivity of about sixty percent for finding hepatocellular carcinoma, which is kind of crappy. Um, and the things that make it even worse are f- obesity, 
and fatty liver disease. So in our patients who have fatty liver disease that we're surveying for HCC, we have to be a little careful because if that ultrasound comes back saying that's a liver, really dense liver, or I, you know, we're having a hard time visualizing with the ultrasound, you need to take that seriously because that means that your sensitivity for finding HCC is in the toilet, okay? And you, you've got to start thinking about, unfortunately, much more costly things such as MRIs and CT scans uh, for surveillance. But yeah, until they're cirrhotic, that's the short answer. All right. Should we go on to the last part, which is going to be the treatment? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think we just stop here. Yeah. The treatment. Why bother? (laughs) Let's do it. Okay. So for Mr. S, he is now returning for another follow-up visit. And in our previous episodes on cirrhosis, we briefly discussed weight loss and the use of pioglitazone and vitamin E to treat non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And so reviewing those topics as well as additional ways to treat and provide management options for him. We wanted to start with how do you counsel Mr. S on potential weight loss options and or even bariatric surgery? When would you start to think of surgical interventions as an option for weight loss in NAFLD? Bariatric surgery works fantastic for NASH. I mean, it's wonderful for NASH. The problem is it's not really an indication for bariatric surgery. So we don't we don't send people to bariatric surgery because they have NASH. You know, there are indications for having bariatric surgery. Uh, in fact, I'm missing my favorite show, My 600-Pound Life, as we speak, as we <laughs> tape this podcast. We're so sorry. <laughs> but there are reasons why people should be sent to have bariatric surgery, okay? And, and if they have indications for bariatric surgery in general— then that would likely be helpful for NASH. But we don't send our average NASH patient for bariatric surgery, okay, at least at least as it stands right now. Um, you have to be very careful with bariatric surgery and cirrhosis. And in particular, most, most bariatric surgeons are very gun-shy about cirrhosis for good reason. Um, but uh, in your typical NASH patient, I don't start there, okay? If it's a, it's, if it's a super obese patient with, with, you know, severe complications of obesity, can you go down the bariatric surgery route? Absolutely. But that's for that and not necessarily for the NASH. The NASH will probably get better if they get bariatric surgery. You know, weight loss and talking to patients about weight loss is the very keystone of management for for NASH uh, and for fatty liver disease in general. But the problem is that it's it's absolute a, a quagmire of 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 it's just a mess. I, I don't know how else to describe it. How do you tell people to lose weight? Um, the, the, there's no good data. There's no good, there's no good study out there that says this is the way that works. So what I tell my patients is that, you know, the bottom line is that calorie reduction is what works. We know, we know that if you reduce the amount of calories you eat every day, you'll lose weight. But the problem is that most people can't do that. Okay, there are a few like seriously OCD people who can like hammer away on my fitness pal on their on their phone and calculate everything and weigh everything they do. And those people will do well and lose weight. But for other people, they need they need to try other things. Now, I'm very lucky to have a very, very good weight loss clinic here at at the hospital that I work in. I can just send my patients over to the medical weight loss clinic. Uh, One of my colleagues, Dr. Wolver, is just absolutely fantastic and is very good at getting people to lose weight. She utilizes the ketogenic diet. But the problem is that the ketogenic diet is like super controversial, right? And you'll see like you'll see like one study saying that bacon kills you, and the next day you'll see a study that says bacon will help you live. And so it's hard to say. So what I tell my patients is this: that look, you got to lose weight. 
this is a process. Fatty liver disease is a process that's driven by the insulin resistance. Remember, I've given them this sort of whole baseline of how this whole thing works. And that insulin and insulin levels are most strongly affected by carbohydrate intake. Okay, and so this is the way I think of things. And so the best thing that you can do for this is to cut down your carbohydrate intake. Now, what are carbohydrates? You know, carbohydrates are one of the three different things that we eat as humans. We eat carbohydrates, we eat fats, we eat proteins, okay? Carbohydrates are things that our bodies turn immediately into sugar and can be used as as fuel for our body's cells. So <clears throat> what I would recommend that you do is, is uh, cut out what I call the crap, okay? And crap is... And I've, you guys have seen this, and this may have been on this been on Facebook and stuff like that. But but crap is carbonated beverages. So I always talk to them about what they're drinking because most people are drinking soda, or I say carbonated or sweetened beverages because that's off, often like the lowest hanging fruit that you can get to help people lose weight. I said if you can cut out like 250, 300 calories out of your diet each day, you'll start to lose weight. I can almost guarantee it, you'll lose some weight. And the easiest way to do that is to cut out your Coke that you're drinking every day or cut out your whatever cola or your or your eight glasses of lemonade or your your sweet tea pitcher, you know, uh, because these things are are the easiest, simplest uh, dietary modifications that people can make. And so carbonated and sweetened beverages. And I go after things like fruit juices uh, and stuff like that. And I so say you have to think about these things. And then the R is in crap is refined sugar. You know, sugar is the devil when it comes to fatty liver disease, as far as I'm concerned. And fructose in particular, I don't want to, you know, make angry the high fructose corn syrup lobby, but I am a big believer that high fructose corn syrup has playing a big role in fatty liver disease. It's playing a big role in in uh, the obesity epidemic in general in this country, and I talk to people about it and how, how we can reduce our intake of it. You know, the liver can really do very little with fructose after it's been phosphorylated. I mean, it really goes into the fat pathway, and that's pretty much the only thing that can happen with it. So um, the bottom line is that high fructose corn syrup and sweetened uh, sweet, sugary things are what I try to get people to cut down on. Cut down on the sweets, cut down on simple carbohydrates, uh, cut down on the breads and the rices and the pastas of the world. Be careful with fruit even. Uh, you know, some people just eat metric tons of fruit, and really fruit is nothing but sugar mixed with some fiber, you know. Um, so these, this is what I advise people to do. Cut down on the amount of carbs and sweets and sweet sugary drinks. And oftentimes if you do that, you'll you'll start to lose a little bit of weight. Some people want to be more aggressive. We can talk about the ketogenic diet, the Atkins diet, you know, other different ways of, of, of achieving weight loss. But the bottom line is that everybody's different. And everybody's going to lose weight in a different way. Yeah. I know there were some questions about fasting. I think that's probably out outside the scope of this episode. I think we probably should talk about some of the older medications that have been used for this and then some of the newer medications. There was questions about the newer diabetes drugs and then anything else that you wanted to tease that's in the pipeline now. Absolutely. There's there's a lot of things in the pipeline. Um, but uh, as if you there's a recent review, the one that actually where they uh, – they expressed that we should change the name of this to metabolic associated fatty liver disease. They actually bemoan the state of pharmacologic agents for NASH and basically say that you're sort of in this situation where you, even if you have a successful drug, you're barely beating placebo. You know, it's sort of like a, a treatment for irritable bowel syndrome or something. It's it's hard to it's hard to find something in something as complex as this with as many sort of environmental and genetic and uh, nutritional factors that go into this to find some one medicine that's going to make all of this better. And that's what I always tell my patients. I said, we, we don't have a miracle pill for this fatty liver disease for NASH. 
we're looking for one. We're, we're doing studies, but so far um, we, we don't have anything. We do have a few things that we use, like vitamin E, uh, just right off the bat. You know, vitamin E, um, it, it, got its, uh, it got its name through the Pivens trial, which came out, uh, I want to say, in 2010 um, in the New England Journal. And Pivens stood for pioglitazone versus vitamin E versus nothing special. And <laughs> and basically— is that uh, real? Yeah, that's exactly what. Amazing. I love I love trial names. I, w- I wish I could I could come up with some of these very nice names. But basically, why do they feel compelled to use Pivens though? Were they Entourage fans? I mean, I'm, surely that joke's been made before. <laughs> but like, I'm just fascinated why they would force that particular acronym into this. I'll 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 ask Arun Sanyal next time I run into him. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. So, carry on. So basically, what the Pivens trial showed is that um, people on vitamin E. Um, had better uh, better fibros and better inflama- inflammatory scores, and basically their NASH got better, uh, better like significantly better than pioglitazone or nothing special. Okay, so but the the sort of uh, the reason for using it is it's an anti-inflammatory and maybe has anti-inflammatory effects in the liver. So basically, do you use vitamin E? I use vitamin E. Okay, I put certain population on vitamin E. The Pivens trial was in non-diabetic patients without cirrhosis, okay? And that's who I will consider using vitamin E in. If I have a non-diabetic patient who has vitamin, who has, uh, who does not have cirrhosis, I'll put them on 800 international units of vitamin E and uh, tell them to take it daily and that it may help, okay? It's not going to make the NASH go away. It might make their liver enzymes come down, uh, but it may help. You have to be a little bit careful because there are some issues uh, with vitamin E in larger sort of population-based studies. There's some linking it to prostate cancer. There's some linking it to increased risk of death in people that have cardiovascular disease. And so I'm upfront with my patients about that, and I don't use it in people that have like a lot of cardiovascular risk factors and stuff like that. Uh, pioglitazone, I guess we can bring up the other, the, the P in Pivens. Pioglitazone uh, was pretty unremarkable in the Pivens trial, but subsequent trials have actually shown it to be uh, potentially useful in both non-diabetic patients, which is interesting, and uh, and diabetic patients with NASH. And uh, you certainly can use pioglitazone. I will tell you that the NASH people that I work with uh, tend to shy away from pioglitazone for one major reason. The side effect of pioglitazone is weight gain, Okay. Um, and that's a big problem when you're dealing with something like NASH. And so the question is, can you use pioglitazone? Sure. Do you continue to use pioglitazone if your patient is gaining weight on it? I think I think maybe no. I, but I, I don't know. That, that's, that would be up to you, basically. Uh, I would say that I don't spend a lot of time prescribing pioglitazone for NASH, uh, but uh, other people probably do. Uh, other things like... Uh, Liraglutide. Uh, liraglutide showed some pretty decent benefit um, in uh, this study, the lean trial, um, for for management of NASH. Um, and I, you know, if a patient uh, potentially needs that or has really bad insulin resistance or or diabetes, I, I think using something like liraglutide or semaglutide. I think semaglutide is um, actually there's a big big phase three trial of that going on. Uh, currently for NASH, and so we should hopefully have better better answers. The the small study, the the lean trial that got the, all the press about liraglutide was pretty small. I think like 74 patients or something like that. So can you use liraglutide or semaglutide? Yes, um, but um, again, uh, probably in the patient population that would otherwise be a candidate for that. Urso deoxycholic acid, no, doesn't. I, I don't use urso. Urso doesn't seem to work. There are some isomers of urso that are being looked at uh, for this. 
Um, there's a variety of different things that uh, are being looked at, but again, they're kind of not ready for prime time yet. Um, so the moral of the story with Nash is that we can't we can't rely on a magic pill appearing anytime soon. Uh, that's going to fix this problem. Really, it's going to boil down to lifestyle modifications and weight loss. And this wonderful study that came out of Cuba in 2015, like one of my favorite studies ever, uh, in patients with Nash, uh, biopsy-proven Nash, diet and exercise, nothing magical, nothing special. The patients that lost 10% of their body weight and were able to maintain that had almost near universal resolution of the inflammation associated with Nash. And that's what it, that's that's what you should hang your head on. That's what you should be trying to achieve with your patients is is weight loss, uh, one way or another. Come you know hell or high water. That's that's what you need to be shooting for with these folks. And if you have an indication for liraglutide. Uh, or you want to try pioglutazone, that's all well and good. They've been studied. They seem to have some effect in certain people. Um, but just don't expect a miracle with them. What about coffee? I feel like something. So any time there's a positive study with coffee, I get all kinds of excited because I feel like that might actually save me from whatever's going to kill me. Um, yeah. Why do I seem to recall there's maybe some benefit for that, or am I making that up? No, absolutely. Coffee seems to have this sort of like profound positive effect in the liver in general. Um, and we just don't seem to understand. And um, they, they studied coffee. Coffee's been studied across a broad variety of liver diseases, and it just seems to be beneficial. It seems to help. I love it. Um, this is great news. <laughs> yeah. Such great news. <laughs> and honestly, Finally, one organ that won't betray me. The more it's, it's, <laughs> it seems like the more coffee you drink, the better it is. Like uh, caffeinated seems to be good. Um, it's, so for the liver, I always tell people, drink all the coffee you want. Coffee's great. Out of the big uh, HALT-C trial that came out of uh, VCU um, many, many moons ago, they did subgroup analysis, and the patients who drank more coffee had less severe disease or less likely to develop cirrhosis, were less, less likely to get liver cancer. It just seems like coffee's really beneficial for the liver. So that's one thing I always tell people. I say, you come to the hepatologist, I'm going to tell you you can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't do anything fun. I said, but you can drink coffee, and you can drink all the coffee you want to drink because coffee seems to be great for the liver. Scott, I wanted to call out something that uh, a recent guest, Dr. Utibe Essien, we were talking to him about. Uh, we were talking to him about patients not not being prescribed uh, the best medication, and it was because there's all these roadblocks to to doing what is the right thing, and I think. In this country, we've talked about this on another episode, the, the standard American diet or the SAD diet, I think it's just a toxic food environment. And it's really, you, you have to sympathize with patients that it's it's not easy for them to make the right choice. And I think some of this is just, some of this as a country, or I don't know how this gets fixed. It, it has to be like big, way above, upstream, above our heads, uh, fixing like, the foods available to patients is just making it affordable for patients to get the right, the, the foods that they should be eating and to avoid the wrong foods, which tend to be the cheapest, most available, most addictive foods. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I think about this all the time, especially if I'm taking care of like a lower income patient or something like that. I'm saying, I'm telling them they need to eat all this great food and vegetables and meat. And so it's just not affordable. And they live in a food desert. You know, they live in a place where they can't even get to a grocery store. And I'm telling them they got to eat all this great. It just it makes me feel hopeless a little bit sometimes. That you're you're absolutely right. This is this is the sad diet, the the inability, the the high cost of healthy food, the low cost of crappy food. It's it's a systemic societal issue that until we address it, I think that this is going to be 
you know, feeding my clinics full of fatty liver disease and cirrhosis for many, many years to come, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, we are probably at the point where we need to get take-home points. We've we've had a lot of your time tonight, which we truly appreciate. But what are some of the main things you'd like to leave the audience with just to highlight this broad, broad topic that we just talked about? Well, just I, I, I have about four key points that I would like you to go home with. And number one is that um, just to know that Fatty liver disease is here. It's everywhere. It's all in your clinics. Um, Most of your patients with fatty liver disease are not going to have the inflammatory fatty liver disease, but you need to be on guard for those that do uh, because it can be devastating if it's undiagnosed and untreated. Um, The treatment of fatty liver disease, the sort of second thing is that uh, with all the pills and medications that are out there and in the pipeline, Really, the best treatment for this is weight loss. Weight loss is key, and weight loss by any means necessary. So if you can find a way, if it's Weight Watchers, if it's the Atkins diet, if it's the keto diet, uh, if, if it's whatever, intermittent fasting, if it's my fitness pal, if it's whatever, you can find a way to help your patient lose 10% of your body weight. 10% of their body weight, I can guarantee you'll see their liver enzymes get better. I, I've seen it a million times. I've, I've, and I tell patients, if you can do this for me, I bet your liver enzymes will get better. And if your liver enzymes get better, your liver will chill out and you will do fine. Okay. So that that's the goal. 10% body weight loss by any means necessary. That is the treatment of choice, the best choice, best treatment for fatty liver disease. You need to be vigilant for it. Um, keep in mind that the abnormal liver enzymes, the liver enzymes that are called abnormal on your blood tests at, at home are not necessarily what liver doctors consider abnormal. ALT is much above 20 for a female. ALT is much above 30 for a male are abnormal, and they've been associated with liver-related morbidity and mortality. Okay, so you just have to keep it in mind. Don't, don't think your patient with an ALT of 50 every time you see him for the last 10 years that there's nothing going on because they're not. He's, he's got liver injury going on for one reason or another. And finally, just the one take-home message is statins. Don't be afraid of statins. Please don't be afraid of statins when it comes to the liver. Just because your patient has liver disease doesn't mean they need to come off of their statin. Um, Statins are very safe in chronic liver disease, uh, even up to cirrhosis. Um, And they can be very, very beneficial when it comes to their cardiovascular risk uh, and may even be beneficial for the liver disease itself. All right. Any plugs? I've got nothing to plug. I'm. Uh, should I plug anything? And I don't know if I have anything to plug. I'm, I'm thinking about writing a book, but uh, it's kind of in the preconceptual stage right this at this time. So nothing to plug. Um, that's pretty much it for me. All right. Well, let us know if you write a book. You can come on the show and promote it. I would love. I would love to hear about it. All right. All right. Thank you, Scott. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Tasty. I'm I'm shipping. Catch <laughs> 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 your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Well, that I don't know why I found that so unsettling. I I, <laughs> I, I was I just I, I had to process it. It took me a minute. Like the whole thing, really. I just I'm off my game now. <laughs> We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Elena Gibson, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, 
Madison Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Alina Gibson here. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you are presumably hearing now, as well as to Claire Morgan and Otterly for editing. And I remain, as always, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.